Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. I'll be bringing you the latest science news this week, along with Kat Arney and Diana O'Carroll. Coming up this week, the relationship between infection and prostate cancer. The researchers found that infection with trichomonas was associated with a more than two-fold increase in the risk of advanced prostate cancer and a nearly three-fold increase in prostate cancer that would result in death. How an MRI scan can find long-lost memories. Now, when a volunteer strongly recalled a word from a particular task and what they'd done with it, it was very similar to the pattern generated during the task itself, so first time round. But when they only weakly could remember what they'd done with it, they still produced quite a strong pattern which was recognisable as belonging to that task. So it suggests that the memory is in there somewhere. We just need to know how to get it out. And how the aphid genome can help in the fight against plant pests. And we are now able to use that information to look at the genes and the proteins involved in insecticide binding and try to devise ideas about making better chemicals to overcome resistance or perhaps to bind to the target protein in this aphid rather than in a beneficial like a bee. So having the genome of this aphid is now helping us with new control measures for other aphids. Plus, how addictive drugs rewire the brain and the genetic secrets of the potato disease that led to the 19th century Irish famine. That's all on the way. Now, in the news this week, there's some very interesting work being done on prostate cancer. Now, there are a few cancers that we know that infection plays a role in them, such as cervical cancer, which is caused by the HPV uh, virus and infection with that, and some cases of cancer that are caused by the Epstein-Barr virus. And now we may be able to add some cases of prostate cancer to that list if early results from the US are anything to go by. And this is work published by Jennifer Stark and her colleagues. They published the results this week in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, showing a strong association between a commonly sexually transmitted infection, that's trichomonas vaginalis, and risk of advanced and fatal prostate cancer in men. So what is the link? What have they found? Well, trichomonas infects around 174 million people every year around the world, and it can can infect the prostate gland. Now, it's thought that infection leads to inflammation, which in turn could trigger prostate cancer. Now, a previous study has found a link between prostate cancer risk and trichomonas infection, but it was a really small study. Now, this is a slightly larger study, and they looked at 673 men with prostate cancer, and they looked at blood samples taken from them back in the 80s before the cancer had developed. And then they compared their infection status with 673 men who didn't have cancer. Now, that's a decent long-term study, so hopefully these results will be reliable. What did they find? Well, the researchers found that infection with trichomonas was associated with a more than two-fold increase in the risk of advanced prostate cancer and a nearly three-fold increase in prostate cancer that would result in death. Sounds nasty, but say if I had prostate cancer, which I you know, may well end up doing one day, I know it's incredibly common amongst men, uh, how would you know? How would you know if you're infected with this virus? How would I know if my likelihood of having prostate cancer was increased? by being virally infected? It's not a virus, it's a bacteria. And up to three quarters of men infected with the bacterium might not actually realise they carry it since they don't develop any symptoms. And clearly not everyone with the infection goes on to subsequently develop prostate cancer. Now it's worth pointing out that much more work needs to be done to confirm this finding and to find out how trichomonas infection is linked to prostate cancer. But if it holds true in larger studies, it would be really important as the infection is easily treated with a course of quite cheap antibiotics. 
So perhaps this could turn out to be a way to prevent many cases of prostate cancer every year. Well, that's very promising. We all have to keep an eye on that. Now, also this week, the genome of the water mould responsible for potato blight and resultingly responsible for the Great Irish Famine. This is called Phytothora infestans. Uh, That's been published in this week's Nature, and there are some tantalising targets for attack. But surely the potato famine was over 100 years ago. Isn't this a little bit late? Well, yes. When we talk about the potato famine, which famously hit Ireland between 1845 and 1852, it does seem like a historical rather than a contemporary concern that we have. But plant diseases like potato blight do remain a threat to food security all over the world. In fact, current annual losses due to blight are estimated to be 6.7 billion dollars. Well, can't we just use like pesticides to knock it out? Why do we have to find the genome and, and go forward with this kind of research? Well, preventing and treating blight has actually proven very difficult because it seems to adapt remarkably quickly to our control methods, taking hold very quickly in cultivars of potato that are or rather were genetically resistant to blight. So now with the publication of its genome, we can start to understand just how it adapts so quickly and we can devise better ways to fight it. Chad Nussbaum from the Broad Institute of MIT in Harvard, Cambridge in Massachusetts, and his colleagues actually from all over the world, analysed the genome and they compared it to other species of Phytophthora. They found a dense region of highly conserved genes, so these are genes that all these different species share, but then the majority of the genome consisted of these repeating regions. Now, Paul Birch is a professor of plant pathology at the University of Dundee, and he was a co-author on the paper, and he explained why this is important. From the pathogen's point of view, all of the genes that we can see that are to do with infecting potato reside in these repetitive regions. So we would speculate that they're able to evolve faster. The products of uh, the genes in these regions, the proteins that they make, are exposed to the plant's immune system. So we believe that it's, it's got the genes in these regions in order to evolve more rapidly to evade detection by plant immune systems. So this repetitive region of the genome was seen to contain the genes that alter the normal biological processes in the plant, and that helps the blight to get past the plant's defences. It also contained bits of DNA that are known to move around the genome. These are called transposons. And this ability to alter its own genome is thought to be a key feature in the rapid adaptability of the disease. Now that we know how it's doing it, we can start to identify some targets for attack. And also, in a related paper in Current Biology this week, Dawn Arnold from the University of the West of England, or UWE, reports how the, sorry, how the defences of the bean plant may actually be driving bacteria to become even more pathogenic than they already were. Now, obviously, you'd think that plant defences can't be very good if they're actually making their own attacker worse. But it seems that the plants put so much pressure on the bacteria that it forces them to do something a bit unusual. Now, she was working with teams from Imperial College London and Reading University, and they looked at Pseudomonas syringae, which is a bacteria that causes halo blight in bean plants. They observed the bacterium in response to the bean plant's defences, and they watched it eject a little region of their DNA, what they call a genomic island, and that bit of DNA was then taken up by other bacteria. So surely this spells a lot for bacterial evolution if there's sort of DNA floating about and being spat around. Well, exactly. This is something that we call horizontal gene transfer. That's the sort of passage from one bacterium to another. And it's thought to play a very key role in 
bacterial evolution. We know that bacteria can swap these sections of their genome. In fact, we've seen the pathogenic bit of the genome, or the pathogenic genomic island, swapped around in some pretty nasty characters. There's Yersinia, which is the bacteria that causes plague. Plague, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. A food poisoning bacteria, Salmonella, also is known to do the same thing. And Vibrio cholera, which you might work out is responsible for cholera, also does the same sort of thing. But this is the first time that we've actually seen it happen within a host, and certainly the first time that we've seen it happen in response to or encouraged by the stress of a host immune attack. So now looking at the rest of the genome, they were able to identify genes that were essential to actually allow this gene transfer to occur. So if we can target those genes, then we can help to slow the development of the pathogenicity and slow the development of resistance, which is really important, in quite a range of pathogens, which should be able to make our disease control systems for all sorts of different plant pathogens much longer lasting. They're plucky things, those pathogens. (laughs) They get up to all sorts of mischief. Uh, So moving from the plant world into the human world. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Ben, but it happens to me all the time. A person looks familiar, but you can't remember where on earth you met them. Does that happen to you? Yes, it does. It happens an awful lot, far more than it should, I think. Absolutely. And now new research by neuroscientists in the States, this is published in this week's edition of the journal Neuron, suggests why. The memory actually does exist. It's in there somewhere, but you just can't retrieve it. That sort of seems quite logical, but how do they actually show that it's there? Well, they used functional MRI scanning. This is a kind of brain scanning that shows patterns of activity within the brain. And uh, the scientists found that brain activity while remembering an event afterwards is very similar to when you first experienced even if you can't remember the details. But the researchers led by Jeff Johnson think that if we could manage to access this missing memory, it's in there somewhere, it could help us to boost our memory power as we get older, and it also might help shed light on vivid but traumatic memories that we try and subconsciously repress. That's interesting. So what did they, what did they have to do in order to see these, these brain activity in the MRI scanner? Well, they got a bunch of students as volunteers and stuck them in a brain scanner. Uh, The volunteers were shown words and asked to do various tasks related to the words. For example, imagining how an artist would draw the object named by the word, uh, thinking about how the object is used or pronouncing the word backwards in their minds. And then 20 minutes later, the volunteers saw the words a second time and were told to try and remember what they'd done with them the first time round. Now, by comparing the patterns of brain activity first time round with later patterns of brain activity when they were trying to remember what they'd done, the researchers were able to link certain patterns of brain activity to the different activities. Now, when a volunteer strongly recalled a word from a particular task and what they'd done with it, it was very similar to the pattern generated during the task itself, so first time round. But when they only weakly could remember what they'd done with it, they still produced quite a strong pattern which was recognisable as belonging to that task. So it was very similar to first time round. So it suggests that the memory is in there somewhere. We just need to know how to get it out. Fantastic. Thank you, Kat. The the brain's an amazing thing, isn't it? It really is quite remarkable. It is. Uh, Tell us about your story because I can't wait to hear about it. Well, this is the thing, you see, that the brain, it may be amazing, but that doesn't stop 
things taking advantage of it. And it seems that addictive drugs hijack a brain reward mechanism in order to strengthen drug-related memories and therefore perpetuate drug use. And this is according to another paper published in Neuron this week. We already know that dopamine, which is the brain's feel-good reward chemical, plays a, exactly, plays a role in addiction. And it also participates in a process that's called synaptic potentiation. Now, that's the strengthening of nerve connections that happens during learning. So to find out if dopamine would encourage synaptic potentiation as a result of exposure to drugs, John Danny from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and his colleagues gave physiologically significant doses of nicotine, so these are doses of nicotine that will have an effect biologically, to freely moving mice, and they recorded their brain activity. And they noticed increased synaptic potentiation that correlated with the mice learning to prefer a location that was associated with the nicotine dose. And they also recorded a local dopamine signal in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is a region towards the centre of the brain, and it's critical for formation of new memories. And this reinforces the view that dopamine enables memories of specific events to be formed. So basically, the, the nicotine, the drug, is rewiring the brain. It effectively makes memories about, you know, stuff you do with drugs seem more significant or important. Well, exactly. That seems to be almost exactly what it does. And this, in turn, starts a vicious cycle where the dopamine strengthens the drug-associated memories and it attaches more importance to them. And that, in turn, increases the likelihood of future drug use. So in any normal situation, the dopamine signal would mark memories and feelings about the environment as important things and that would be an important part of the learning process but this in the presence of an addictive substance means that the system is subverted and you learn that the drugs are very important john danny summarized the importance of this for understanding addiction he said when specific environmental effects occur such as the place or people associated with drug use they are capable of cueing drug associated memories or feelings that motivate continued drug use or relapse now, understanding how drugs change our perception may help to develop treatments or means to prevent relapse, which will save both money and lives. And this has just been done with nicotine, but presumably it's the same for many of the illegal drugs that, uh, that people choose to use as well. I think any addictive drug is very likely to have the same sort of brain mechanism going on, even though their chemistries themselves will differ slightly. The fact that they, I think almost all addictive drugs activate this dopamine reward system, and that suggests that that's really what's going on. In effect, every time you have a cigarette at the bus stop, there's something going on in your brain that tells you that this bus stop is a good place to be and what you should be doing is having a cigarette. Years later, say if you quit smoking and you walk past that bus stop, that pathway is still in your brain. It's been strengthened by the dopamine, and so it actually might make you think, I could do with a cigarette right now. And maybe it'll make you think that that was a really great party I was at, whereas it was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's very possibly. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Also in the news this week, an international consortium of aphid researchers have been studying the newly decoded aphid genome, due to be published later this year, with a view to developing better pesticides that will not let the aphids develop resistance. Diana O'Carroll met Professor Linfield and Professor Kim Hammond-Cossack at the British Science Festival to find out why the aphid and pesticide resistance is such a problem. The problem is that we need to control insect pests, so 
insects are pests of many of our crops, and if we didn't control them, we would have a severe reduction in crop production. And at the moment, when all the emphasis is on trying to grow more food, we need to make sure we can control pests effectively. The trouble is that when you control pests with chemistry, for instance, the pests are kind of one jump ahead of you at some point, and they develop a resistance to those chemicals. And we have to find ways of either overcoming that resistance or managing it or designing better pesticides that will overcome resistance and also be more selective for pest insects rather than beneficial insects. Lynn, we've got some species of some little aphids there, I think. Could you quickly give us a talk through them? Yes, I can. Aphids are a very important crop pest, um, mainly because they carry virus diseases, plant viruses. They they can do some direct damage by feeding on young shoots, but the, the most damage is done by vectoring viruses. And one of the most important pests is this aphid, the peach potato aphid, or Mysus persici, to give it its Latin name. This is a very important pest in the UK of potatoes, sugar beet, oilseed rape. And we have quite a lot of problems with this aphid because it's developed resistant to many chemicals. This other aphid here is actually the pea aphid, a Certhosiphon pisum. And the reason I brought that along is not because it's a very important pest, but because this is the aphid where we now have a genome sequence. So we have a full genome sequence for this aphid. And most of the genes in there seem to be very similar to genes in other aphids. And we are now able to use that information to look at the genes and the proteins involved in insecticide binding and try to devise ideas about making better chemicals to overcome resistance or perhaps to bind to the target protein in this aphid rather than in a beneficial like a bee. So having the genome of this aphid is now helping us with new control measures for other aphids. And Kim, just to come to you, could you explain a little bit more about how sequencing the genome can help us find those targets? Yes, I mean, when you sequence a genome, first of all, you end up with just a long string of A, C's, T's and G's. But it's when you actually look at that in the context of the genes and where the genes are situated in the genome, then some patterns start to emerge. What genes are present, what are absent, which ones are different between the species. And then you can actually say to yourself, does this actually then affect the biology of the organism? Because our different pests and pathogens have different strategies to attack and cause disease and damage to plants. And then you can start to say there might be some correlations between the presence of particular genes and the way in which they actually have a strategy of attack. Do you think that finding these targets will be the solution? I don't think there'll ever be a final solution. It means that you're almost on a staircase, and what you do is you successfully hop up each step, and then it gives you a chance of actually controlling what is going on at the moment, learn from the mistakes, benefit from the gains, and then hopefully move to the next step when you've got more information. Uh, And by sequencing, particularly in the failures, the strains that come through, what is selected each time, and then learning from those. And I think for insects, the benefit of having genomes from a whole different range of different insect species, which we're now beginning to get, it's going to allow us to look at the um, use of chemicals that will target one species, because one of the problems with using insecticide has been the use of it in crop pests has spilt over into damage to non-target pests, which is what we want to avoid. That was Kim Hammond-Cossack and Lynn Field from Rothamsted Research explaining how understanding the genome of an insect pest can help to develop new control methods that get around the problem of pesticide resistance. You can read about this and lots of other science news on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which featured Kat Arney, Diana O'Carroll and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. 
As always, there's plenty more science available on the website and in our other podcasts. You can find them all on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another roundup of science news next week. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.